later of old jealousies among the generals and officers in the field. Fact is, thirty-one men were abandoned to their fate amid curses and vows, surrounded by low Dutch disposed to avenge the slashed throats of their comrades. With less chance than the invincible armada of the good King Philip II, it was a long and very hard day, and in order that you may picture what happened, only two of the Spanish made it back to the other bank of the river by the time night fell. Diego Alatriste was one of them, and as all day long he had commanded the troops, the authentic captain having been rendered hors de combat in the first skirmish with two handspans of steel protruding from his back, the title fell to him, though he had no opportunity to enjoy the honor. Captain for a day of troops fated to die, and paying their way to hell at the cost of their hides one after another, with the river to their backs and blaspheming in good Castilian Spanish. But that is the way of war and the maelstrom. That is the way it goes with Spain. Well, then, my father was the other Spanish soldier who returned that night. His name was Lope Balboa. He was from the province of Guipuzcoa, and he, too, was a courageous man. They say that Diego Alatriste and he were very good friends, almost like brothers, and it must be true, because later, on the bulwarks of Ulic, where my father was killed by a ball from a huckabus, which was why Diego Belazquez did not include him in his painting of the surrender of Breda, as he did his friend and fellow Diego, Alatriste, who is indeed there, behind the horse. He swore that he would look after me when I grew out of childhood. And that is why, when I turned thirteen, my mother supplied me with shirt and breeches, and a rosary, and a crust of bread tied up in a kerchief, and sent me to live with the captain taking advantage of a cousin who was traveling to Madrid. Thus it was that I came to enter the service at a rank somewhere between servant and page of my father's friend. A confidence. I very much doubt whether, had she known him well, the mother who gave me birth would so gaily have sent me to his service. But I suppose that the title of captain, though apocryphal, added sheen to his character. Besides, my poor mother was not well, and she had two daughters to feed. By sending me off she had one fewer mouth at table, and at the same time was giving me the opportunity to seek my fortunate court. So, without bothering to ask further details, she packed me off with her cousin— together with a long letter written by the priests of our town, in which she reminded Diego Alatriste of his promise and his friendship with my deceased father. I recall that when I joined the captain's service, not much time had passed since his return from Flanders, because he carried an ugly wound in his side received at Fleurus, still fresh and a source of great pain. Newly arrived, Timid and as easily frightened as a mouse, on my pallet at night I would listen to him pace back and forth in his room, unable to sleep. 
and at times I heard him softly singing little verses, interrupted by stabs of pain. Lopez verses, then a curse or a comment to himself, partly resigned and almost amused. That was typical of the captain. To face each of his ills and misfortunes as if they were a kind of inevitable joke that an old, perverse acquaintance found entertaining to subject him to from time to time. Perhaps that was the origin of his peculiar sense of harsh, unchanging, despairing humor. That was a long time ago, and I am a bit muddled regarding dates. But the story I am going to tell you must have taken place around 1620-something. It is the adventure of masked men and two Englishmen, which caused not a little talk at court, and in which the captain not only came close to losing the patched-up hide he had managed to save in Flanders, and in battling Turkish and Barbary corsairs, but also made himself a pair of enemies— who would harass him for the rest of his life. I am referring to the secretary of our lord and king Luis de Alcazar, and to his sinister Italian assassin, the silent and dangerous swordsman named Gualterio Malatesta, a man so accustomed to killing his victims from behind that when by chance he faced them he sank into deep depressions, imagining that he was losing his touch. It was also the year in which I fell in love like a bawling calf, then and forever, with Angelica de Alcazar, who was as perverse and wicked as only evil in the form of a blonde eleven- or twelve-year-old girl can be. But we will tell everything in its time. My name is Inigo, and my name was the first word Captain Alatriste uttered the morning he was released from the ancient prison in the castle, where he had spent three weeks as a guest of the king for non-payment of debts. That he was the king's guest is merely a manner of speaking, for in this, as in other prisons of the time, the only luxuries— and food was included as such, were those a prisoner paid for from his own purse. Fortunately, although the captain had been incarcerated nearly innocent of any funds, he had a goodly number of friends. So thanks to one and then another fellow who came to his aid during his imprisonment, his stay was made more tolerable by the stews, the Caridad la Lebrejana, the mistress of the Tavern of the Turk, sometimes sent by way of me, and by the four reales sent by his companions, Don Francisco de Quevedo, Juan de Cunha, among others. As for the rest of it, and here I am referring to the hardships of prison life itself, the captain knew better than any how to protect himself. The practice of relieving one's wretched companions in misfortune of their wealth, clothes, even their shoes was notorious at that time. But Diego Alatriste was quite well known in Madrid, and any who did not know him soon found it was better for their health to approach him with caution. 
According to what I later learned, the first thing he did once inside the walls was to go straight to the most dangerous ruffian among the prisoners, and after greeting him politely, press the cold blade of that lethal Biscayna, which he had kept, thanks to the transfer of a few maravedis to the jailer, to the thug's gullet. It worked like a sign from God. After this unmistakable declaration of principles, no one dared lift a hand against the captain, who from then on slept in peace, wrapped in his cape in a reasonably clean corner of the establishment, and protected by his reputation as a man with steel in his spine. Later, his generous sharing of La Labrijana's stews, as well as bottles of wine brought from the warden with the assistance of friends, helped secure him the loyalty of his fellow prisoners. Even from the low life of that first day, a man from Cordoba with the unfortunate name of Bartolo Cagafuego. Although carrying the burden of a name like Bartolo Shitfire was reason enough to get him into trouble as regularly as a pious old dame goes to Mass, and though he had spent more than his share of time in the king's galleys, he was not a rancorous fellow. It was one of Diego Alatriste's virtues that he could make friends in hell. It seems unreal. I do not remember the exact year. It was the twenty-second or twenty-third year of the century, but what I am sure of is that the captain emerged from the prison on one of those blue, luminous Madrid mornings so cold that it takes your breath away. From that day.